Uh, I'll never forget the day that my college roommate came back to the dorm and he announced to me, he said, I have just seen the best movie ever. And he proceeded to tell me the story of this no-account boxer by the name of Rocky Balboa who had been invited to fight the heavyweight champion of the world, Apollo Creed. And he had said yes, and he'd gone into training, and he'd worked hard to get ready for this fight. I just had to do that, okay? Now, you know the end of the story. He doesn't win the match. He comes close. It's a split decision. But he's proved he's got heart. And at the the end of the movie, he's standing there in the middle of the ring, and he's bloodied, and his eyes are swollen shut, and he's crying, Adrian, Adrian. I love that movie. It is a great movie. They, They don't make many movies like that. Well, actually, they made five more movies exactly like that. (laughs) Sylvester Stallone, who wrote and starred in Rocky, he then wrote and starred in Rocky II. Rocky has a rematch with Apollo Creed, and this time he wins. And Rocky III, and Rocky IV, and Rocky V, and Rocky VI, which isn't called Rocky VI. It's called Rocky Balboa, but it's really Rocky VI. These these Rocky films have grossed over a billion dollars worldwide, and evidently Sylvester Stallone still has some fight in him, because I just saw an advertisement this Christmas, on Christmas Day, I'm not making this up, there's a brand new movie coming out, it's called Grudge Match, it's about an aging fighter, surprise, played by Sylvester Stallone, who's going to fight another aging boxer. Remember Raging Bull, Robert De Niro? You're going to have a 67-year-old fighting a 70-year-old. And I am probably going to go to this ridiculous movie. (laughs) Probably not on Christmas, because Sue will not let me out of the house to do that. But for, for 37 years, Sylvester Stallone has been fighting in the movies. The dude's got pluck. He's got determination, perseverance, fortitude. Yeah, what about us? What, what about the fight that we're engaged in? The Apostle Paul says that if we're followers of Jesus Christ, then we're, we're boxers who are not just beating the air. You saw that scripture, 1 Corinthians 9.26 on the screen of the video just before the sermon. Okay, God has called us into a fight. Now, you can, you can avoid this fight by simply choosing not to follow Christ. But if that's your decision, then you've got other problems. If you choose not to follow Christ, and the Bible says you're spiritually dead, you're a captive to Satan, and you're headed to an eternity without God in a place called hell. So, so I, I think I'll choose to follow Christ, even though it means a fight. A fight with what? Fight with evil. Evil is represented by three opponents, the flesh, the world, The devil. Those are the three opponents we're going to take a look at one at a time over the next three weeks of this series that we're calling The Fight. And by the way, if you're blissfully unaware that you're in a fight, that's not a good sign. If you're thinking today, fight? What fight? I don't know anything about a fight. It means one of of two things. It means even though you may think you're a Christ follower, you're not yet a Christ follower because if you were, you'd be in a fight. Or it means you're in this fight, but you're losing it so badly, you're so punch drunk, you don't even realize you're in the ring. 
So I want you to take a Bible right now. I want you to turn with me to Romans chapter 6. Okay, Romans 6. We're going to learn how to win the fight today with our primary enemy, which is the flesh. There's an outline in your program. You want to fill this out because I'm going to give you three directives that you're going to need probably before the day is out. Before the day is out. Okay, three directives how to win the battle with the flesh. Now, what do I mean by the flesh? Well, the Bible teaches that every one of us has an internal disposition that's inclined towards sin. Every one of us has a sinful nature, a rebellious bent that prompts us to disobey God. That's the flesh. King David, after his fling with Bathsheba, he says in Psalm 51 verse 5, he says, Surely I've been sinful from birth. I've been sinful from the time my mother conceived me. You know, that's true of all of us. We, we are born sinners. God says, do this. We don't want to do that. God says, don't do that. And that's the very thing that we want to do. We've got this enemy living inside of us, and it's called the flesh. Now, in the New Testament, the Greek word that gets translated into English as flesh is the word sarx. I want you to say sarx with me. Sarx. Sarx gets translated as flesh. Now, interestingly, uh, we use the NIV translation of the Bible, the New International Version. Uh, many of you have a copy of the NIV in front of you, either hard copy or on your phone right now, whatever. If, if the copy of the NIV that you have is older than 2011, it translates Sarx as the sinful nature. Because that's what flesh means. It means the sinful nature. However, if you have an updated version, like if, if your edition of the NIV is 2011 or newer, it just goes back to the literal expression, the flesh. And what does the flesh mean? The sinful nature. Okay, so depending on what, uh, what edition you have of the NIV, you might see sinful nature, you might see flesh. The topic that we're addressing today is this. How can we win this battle with the flesh? How can we defeat the sinful nature that's tempting us a bazillion times a day to disobey God? How can we emerge victorious in this fight so that we become more and more and more like our Lord Jesus Christ? By the way, before, before the sermon is out, before the service is out, I'm going to ask you at all four campuses, if you're a Christ follower, to do something dramatic that allows you to say, you know, in a, in a physical demonstrative way. I'm in this fight. I want to win this fight. So the Apostle Paul has three directives for us in how to win the fight in Romans 6 verses 11 through 14. The first one is this. Rehearse your union with Christ. Okay, if you're jotting down notes, that's number one, the first directive. Rehearse your union with Christ. Look at verse 11. Romans 6 verse 11, it's where our text for the day begins. Paul says, in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now that last expression, three-word expression in the verse, in Christ Jesus, is incredibly important. What, what Paul is telling us is that, is that when we surrender our lives to Christ, when we make this faith decision, we become united with Christ in a very special way. We become in Christ Jesus. Now, this is so important to the Apostle Paul that he uses not one expression, but several different expressions to say the very same thing. Go back to verse 3, if you've got your Bible open to Romans 6. In verse 3 of the text, 
look at the expression that Paul uses there to describe our oneness with Christ. By the way, if it helps you, this analogy helps you. You've heard it said at times that when a, a man and a woman, when they get married, they become, the two become one. See, that's what happens when you surrender your life to Christ. You become one with him. You become in Christ. So what does Paul say in verse 3 about this oneness? He says, don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? So what's the expression in verse 3 for oneness? We were what? Call it out baptized into. So in verse 11, we're in Christ. Verse 3, we've been baptized into Christ. Verse 5, he uses yet another expression. He says, for if we have been, verse 5, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. What's the oneness expression in this verse? We are what? United with Christ. And then sometimes Paul takes this united with Christ phrase and he abbreviates it still further. He just says, yeah, you're with Christ. You're with Christ. Look at verse 8. He says, now if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. And there are a lot of with Christ, a lot of with hymns in this sixth chapter of Romans. So what, what is the point that Paul is making here? He's saying that when we surrender our lives to Christ, we become united with him in a very significant way. Now specifically, specifically, listen, we're united with Christ in his death and resurrection. Why is that so important? Well, it has a huge impact on the battle that we're fighting every day with our flesh. Now go back to the opening verse I read to you, verse 11, the last phrase, we're in Christ. It follows a verse that says we're dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. See, we're dead to sin because we're united with Christ in his death. We're alive to God because we're united with Christ in his resurrection. This sounds like great news, but practically speaking, what do these two truths mean? In what sense are we dead to sin and alive to God? And how do these truths help us in our daily battle with the flesh? Let me begin by telling you what these two expressions don't mean. What does it mean to be dead to sin? I'll tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that once you surrender your life to Christ, you no longer find sin appealing. You're no longer tempted. You're now incapable of sinning. Now, that's ridiculous. Of course it doesn't mean that. Because Paul has a lot to say in Romans 6 about We need to stop sinning. We need to stop sinning. We need to stop sinning. So obviously, we're no longer insensitive to sin. It's not like we're a corpse with respect to sin's temptation. What about the other expression? We're now alive to God. What does it not mean? Well, it doesn't mean that if you're alive to God, you're now on some sort of spiritual autopilot so that you automatically, you effortlessly obey God because Christ lives in you. See, if that were the case, then Paul wouldn't talk so much about it being a fight, a struggle, something you got to work at. Okay, that's what being dead to sin and alive to God, that's what they don't mean. What do they mean? Two things. Note these carefully. First, it means that Christ has removed the guilt of my sin and clothed me in his righteousness. Christ has removed the guilt of my sin. I'm dead to sin. And he has clothed me in his righteousness. I'm alive to God. Elsewhere in his New Testament epistles, 
The Apostle Paul describes the Christian life as being like a, a change of clothes. So we take off the old behaviors that were characteristic of who we used to be before Christ. Those dirty, filthy behaviors and attitudes and so on. And now we put on a new set of clothes. We put on behaviors and attitudes you know, that kind of go with who we are in Christ. This is a vivid picture, this change of clothes. And I, I want to make the analogy a bit more vivid for you for a moment here. I want you to imagine that you're going to work out. Okay, so you put on your gym clothes, and you grab your gym bag, and you jump in your car, and you go to export or wherever it is that you work out. And you work out hard. I mean, you work up a sweat. You're smelly. You go into the locker room. You strip off those dirty, sweaty clothes. You get in a shower. You come out of the shower. You go to your locker. You open it up, take out your gym bag, and it's then you discover you forgot to pack clean clothes in your gym bag. This has happened to me. <laughs> So now you're looking at your empty gym bag and you're saying, so what are my alternatives? What are my options here? Well, I could walk out of the locker room naked. That's probably not a good idea. Or you look at those dirty gym clothes. I could put them back on. It's my only option. You know, this T-shirt that is so soaking wet, I could wring it out. These socks that are so gnarly, they could walk out of the locker room on their own. And I got to put it back on. It's disgusting, isn't it? what you would give for a clean set of clothes. Friends, this is the picture of the Christian life. This is what it means to be dead to sin and alive to God. Christ has removed the guilt of our sin, so we don't want to put on those dirty clothes, those dirty behaviors anymore. And Christ has clothed us with his righteousness, and so we want to put on God-honoring behaviors that are marked by love and by patience and by moral goodness and wholesomeness and kindness toward others and self-control and so on. That's what it means to be dead to sin, alive to God. You look at sin and its temptation and you say, I don't want to go there again. That's awful, disgusting. Second thing it means is that Christ has broken sin's power and he set me free to obey God. Christ has broken sin's power and set me free to obey God. Now, we're going to talk more about this one in just a few moments. Right now, all I want to say is that if you've surrendered your life to Christ, if you've been united with Christ in his death and resurrection, sin no longer has a stranglehold on you. Sin no longer has a stranglehold on you. You used to be sin's slave. Whatever sin told you to do, you would do but it no longer controls you if you don't want it to. And you are now free to obey God if that's what you desire. Now, I want you to stop. I want you to think about the two statements I've just given you of what it means to be dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. Okay, it means, first of all, that Christ has removed the guilt of my sin and clothed me in his righteousness. It means, secondly, that Christ has broken sin's power and set me free to obey God. I want to say it again. Christ has removed the guilt of my sin and clothed me in, in his righteousness. Christ has broken sin's power and set me free to obey God. I want you to read this out loud with me with a boisterous voice, all four campuses, here we go. Christ has removed the guilt of my sin and clothed me in his righteousness. 
Christ has broken sin's power and set me free to obey God. I want to do it again. Here we go. Christ has removed the guilt of my sin and clothed me in his righteousness. Christ has broken sin's power and set me free to obey God. Now, why did I ask you to say that a couple of times, to repeat it? Because this is exactly what the the Apostle Paul tells us to do in verse 11 if we want to win our daily battle with the flesh. Go back to verse 11. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Count yourselves, count yourselves, count yourselves. One, One Bible scholar sums up Paul's directive here with these words. He says, we are to recall. We are to ponder, to grasp, to register these truths until they are integral to our mindset, so integral that a return to the old life is unthinkable. You see how that would help you in your daily battle with the flesh? For you to rehearse your union with Christ. That's the first point that we draw out of Romans 6. Rehearse your union with Christ. I'm dead to sin. I'm alive to God. Now, now before we move on to the second point, I want to underscore something that the Apostle Paul says in Romans 6 that will help you, that will help you rehearse your union with Christ. And that special something is baptism. Okay, go back to verse 3. I read it to you a little bit earlier. Verse 3, he says, don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Have you ever surrendered your life to Christ? Well, the Apostle Paul says that once you've surrendered your life to Christ, it's absolutely essential that you get baptized. Why? Well, for one thing, baptism is the outward expression of something that has hopefully happened on the inside of you. Okay, baptism is this, this, this outward statement that internally you've surrendered your life to Christ. If you're unwilling to get baptized, then it calls into question whether there's been in reality an internal transformation, whether you've truly surrendered to Christ. But, but there's another reason to get baptized, and it has to do with your battle with the flesh. See, baptism is a symbolic reminder that you're dead to sin, having gone under the water, and that you're alive to God, rising out of the water. And this symbolic reminder helps you rehearse your union with Christ when you're fighting the flesh, when you're facing temptation. It's sort of of like wearing a wedding band. I'm going to get country music on you for a moment here, okay? But there's there's this great old Randy Travis song that came out a number of years ago, went to number one on the country music charts, called On the Other Hand. You all remember the lyrics to that. And just in case you don't, here they are, okay? (laughs) In in verse one of the song, Randy Randy speaks of a temptation that he's faced with. There's this alluring, this good-looking woman that he's drawn to, not his wife. And he says, on the one hand, on the one hand, there are many reasons why I would move in that direction, give in to that temptation. Then the chorus kicks in, and the opening line of the chorus is, but on the other hand, there's a wedding band. By the way, yes, it's on my right hand. My left ring finger is so broken up that I can't get a ring on it anymore. People always ask me that, so I'll just say it in church here, okay? See, 
But there's a wedding band on the other hand. It reminds me that I'm united to somebody else. So when I'm tempted to commit adultery, you know, I remind myself, I don't belong to that person. I belong to somebody else. You know, Paul says, this is what baptism is. This is what baptism does for you. When you're tempted to sin, you, whoa, whoa, wait a second. I got baptized. I stood in front of hundreds of people and said, I belong to Jesus. I'm in union with him. I'm dead to sin. I'm alive to God. That's what it rehearses. It rehearses the fact that Christ has removed the guilt of my sin and clothed me in his righteousness, that Christ has broken the power of sin in my life and set me free to obey God. Why would I want to do that? You get it? Good. By the way, have you been baptized? You know, because our next baptism is coming up on December 7th and 8th. And you heard there are still some orientation classes left. We want you to go to one of those because we don't want you getting baptized and let, let you understand exactly what you're doing. And so that's what we teach in that class. We don't want anyone to be misled or to do something they don't really mean or don't understand. And so I invite you to attend one of those orientation classes and plan to get a, a wedding band on that you can call to mind when you're facing temptation. Number two, here's Paul's second directive. Number one is to rehearse your union with Christ. Number two, reaffirm Christ's reign in your life. Reaffirm Christ's reign in your life. Uh, I have to admit that when I read the story of Sabine Moreau in my news magazine, I found it difficult to believe. But there it was in the news, so it must be true, right? Okay, so Sabine, this is her story. She lives in Belgium. This happened not too long ago. And she learned that a friend was coming for a visit, and the friend was going to arrive at the train station in downtown Brussels. Well, Sabine lives almost 100 miles from Brussels, not been in Brussels in a long time, doesn't know her way around the city, doesn't know where the train station is. But no problem, she, she plugs in her trusty GPS, and she proceeds to do exactly what it says. The only trouble is the GPS is whacked out. Okay, either that or she, she programmed it wrong. And so it's misleading her, but she is obediently doing everything it tells her to do. She drives hour after hour after hour. She drives for two days. A little bit concerned that the street signs have changed to French and then German and then other languages. But she doesn't get it. In fact, her family, after she's been missing two days, they put out a missing person report, and the police, in a manhunt, I guess you call it a woman hunt, they finally track her down in Croatia, 900 miles away. Point of the story. Don't do everything your GPS tells you to do. Okay. Paul says something similar about our sinful flesh. If we're united with Christ... He says, we no longer have to do everything our sinful flesh tells us to do. In fact, Paul says, pick up your Bible again, look at Romans 6. We're going to move on to verse 12. He encourages us to actively resist the rule of the sinful flesh in our lives. He tells us in this verse that we need to forcefully kick off the throne of our heart, the flesh. Look at verse 12. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. This is, this is a really strong command from Paul. You know, he, he wants to know, is there, is there some sin that's ruling your life like a tyrannical dictator? 
Stop it. You don't have to take orders from that despot. Get rid of, get rid of that little Hitler. Assassinate it. And what, what, what sin in your life is bossing you around? You know, what sin in your life is bossing you around? It tells you to drink, and you drink too much. It tells you to gossip, and so you gossip. It tells you to erupt in anger, and you erupt in anger. It tells you to make an idol, first priority out of your job, or the bears, or playing video games, and you make an idol out of your job, or the bears are playing video games. It tells you to spend all your money on yourself, and you spend all your money on yourself. It tells you to lust over pornography, and so you lust over pornography. Paul says, enough already. Dethrone that sin. The only reason that, that it continues to reign in your life is because you allow it to reign in your life. What steps are you taking to get rid of it? That's a, that's a good question. In, in fact, right now, I want you to call to mind some sin that has a tendency to dominate your life. It may be a big thing. It may, you know, it may be something like irritability or impatience or whatever. And you know what it is. Okay? What, what sin? Every one of us has our favorite fleshly sin. What is it that has a tendency to dominate your life? By the way, if you don't know what it is, but you're sitting next to someone you came to church with, ask them. They'll tell you, okay? You have a particular sin in mind? See, if you're like me, your problem is which of like half a dozen do you go with, right? Let me repeat the question I posed a moment ago. What steps are you taking to get rid of it? So are you saying no to parties where you know there's going to be a lot of drinking? Are you making yourself go and apologize every time you find yourself having gossiped about someone? Are you seeing a Christian counselor to talk about your anger issues? Are you deliberately skipping an occasional bear games just to prove that they don't have a hold on you like at noon today? Just went from preaching to meddling, didn't I? Are, are you staying out of stores and starting to write checks, uh, giving money to the Lord's work? Are you keeping pornography off of your laptop and your smartphone with the help of a good filter and an accountability partner? Now, you know, maybe I didn't touch on the particular sin that's currently reigning in your life, or maybe the step I gave to combat it seems lame to you. Okay, so what is your reigning sin, and what steps can you take to dethrone it? You know, don't try to do this in your own strength. Christ wants to help you. In fact, Christ is the one who should be reigning on the throne of your heart. When you surrendered your life to Christ, at that point in time, when you put your trust in him, you declared, Jesus, you're now my king, you're my master, you're my Lord. And if you didn't say that in so many words, you're not yet united with Christ because that's who he is. He is king and Lord and master. And what, what he wants to do is empower you in your battle with the flesh. You need his help. You need him reigning on the throne instead of this sin that's got you doing what it wants you to do. The, the apostle Paul hints at why you need Christ's help in verse 14. I read verse 12 a moment ago. Skip over verse 13. We're going to come back to it in a few moments. 
But look at verse 14. He says, sin shall no longer be your master. By the way, the word master there is the same Greek word, kurios, that gets translated as Lord, Lord Jesus Christ. It's either going to be sin or Jesus on the throne of your heart. Because you are not under the law, but under grace. Now, what does the second half of that verse mean? You are not under the law, but under grace. Some people read that expression, not under the law, and they conclude, well, I guess that means I no longer have to pay attention to the commands in the Bible because I'm not under God's law. See, all I need to do is obey the internal promptings of God's Spirit when he says do this or don't do that. Don't need the commands, don't need the law, not under the law. It's not at all what Paul means. You know, Paul's got nothing against the law. In Romans 7, he says, if it weren't for the law, I wouldn't know what sin is. It's, it's God's law that defines it, God's law that tells me what to stay away from and what to do in obedience to God. I need the law. However, the trouble with the law, Paul says, says elsewhere, is that the law doesn't have the power to help me keep the law. Did you hear that? The law can't empower me to keep the I can have this great list of moral do's and don'ts. The trouble is the list doesn't have any power in and of itself to help me obey it. This is why I need Christ on the throne of my life. This is why I need to surrender my life to him, why I need to be united with him in his death and his resurrection, why I need to reaffirm on a daily basis his kingship in my life. Say, Jesus, you reign. You know, I love, I love the way that John Bunyan summed up this, this tension between the law and the grace that comes from Christ, the power that comes from affirming his reign in my life. He sums it up in a little ditty that he wrote back in the 1600s. He's the guy who wrote The Pilgrim's Progress, uh, one of the best-selling books of all time. But he contrasts in his, in his little poem the powerlessness of the law. The law is a good thing, but it has no power to help me live it with the power that comes from the good news of Christ. He, he puts it this way. He says, run, John, run, the law commands, but gives me neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids me fly and gives me wings. I love that verse. See, the trouble with the laws is it's not that it's not a good list of moral do's and don'ts. It's a great list of things to do and not do. It just is powerless. See, I need Christ reigning on the throne of, of my heart because he's the one who gives me the power to do what God wants me to do and to not, not do what God doesn't want me to do. You get it? Good. This is what it means to be under grace. It means to be under the reign of Christ in my life. When sin tempts me, you know, which it, it's going to do before the day's out, right? I could look at that temptation and I could say, I don't have to take my orders from you. And then I cry out to King Jesus. I say, oh, King Jesus, help me. I need your power. You see how that works? Okay, number three. Replace sinful behaviors with Christ-serving behaviors. Replace sinful behaviors with Christ-serving behaviors. Now, I've told you this story before, used it as an illustration, but it really serves the purpose of this third point. So, let me bore you with it again. Back in my college days, I spent my summers working for a company that makes industrial-sized fuses. And I worked in the laboratory. 
And the laboratory was run by a crusty old guy named Freddy. And he had this volcanic temper. And when he erupted, he would turn the air blue with profanity. And, and the thing that would really get Freddy mad is if you ever used one of his tools and you broke it while using it for something it was not intended for, you were in deep weeds. So one day, I'm using Freddy's favorite screwdriver to pry the lid off something. Not the intended purpose of a screwdriver. And it snaps in half. And my coworkers in the lab, they can hear this, and they look at me, and they see the broken screwdriver, and they're shaking their heads like, you are so dead. <laughs> and I decided in that moment, moment to do something unusual. I decided to just own up, tell, tell Freddie the truth. No one had ever tried that. See, so if you broke something to Freddie's, you would hide it because you, you didn't want to incur his rage. So I walked over to Freddie's bench holding two pieces of his favorite screwdriver. I said, Freddie, I broke your screwdriver. I was using it for something I shouldn't have been using it for. I'm really sorry. And this caught him totally by surprise. He'd never had anyone try honesty with him. So he didn't know what to All he could say was, don't do it again. That was it. My coworkers looked at me like, the guy's a genius. Where did he, where, where did he come up with? Well, with that story as a backdrop, read verse 13 with me because verse 13 now makes sense. Follow along. Paul says, do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness. That's not the intended purpose of any part of you. Okay, But rather, offer yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life. Offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. That's the appropriate use of any part of you. I hope you were here for our worship time at our four campuses. We did something very special, special prayer in that time. And by the way, if you know, just an aside here, let me encourage you to aim at being at our services just a little bit early. If you aim here at being here on time and you get here late, you're going to miss worship. And worship, we believe, is as important as the teaching of God's Word. It's, it's formative in our lives. You, you need to be here soaking in the worship that we bring to Almighty God. So, so get here in time to worship. In the worship time, between a couple of songs that we sang, we did this prayer. We call it the body parts prayer. And we just walked through several body parts and started with our eyes. First, we ask God to forgive us for the way in which we've used those eyes in a sinful fashion this past week. Everyone has used their eyes to do things they shouldn't have done with those eyes, right? This week. And then we said, and God, we give you our eyes now to use them for your purposes this week. And then you could do that with your mouth. You confess your sin to God. I mean, how many of us used our mouths for sinful purposes this week? All of us did. And you say, God, I repent of that. I'm so sorry for that. And now I want you to use my mouth for your purposes this week. And you go through your other body parts. You go through your hands and your feet and your heart and your brain and so on. Now, this is one way to replace sinful behaviors with Christ-serving behaviors, which is Paul's third directive for winning the battle with the flesh. Let me illustrate how this directive works. Imagine I hand you a block of wood, and it's got a, a, a rusty old nail in it. And I say to you, now, here's the challenge. I want you to get this old nail out of the block of wood. Okay, so how do you do it? Well, you say, well, I grab a hammer that's got a claw, and I try to catch the head of that nail with the claw, and then I pull it out. Well, no, this nail is buried too deep. You can't get to the head. 
You say, well, then I, I get like a chisel and I chisel around the, 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 the nail trying to get down. No, that's never going to work. What's the easiest way to get rid of the old nail? If you know it, call it out. What's the easiest way? Burn, burn it. I hadn't thought of that one. Well, yeah, change that in the notes for the next service. Without destroying the wood, okay? You just drive it out with a new nail. You take a new nail and you tap it, through, and it drives the old rusty nail right out. See, this is what Paul's talking about here. The best way to get rid of a sinful behavior is to drive it out with a Christ-honoring behavior. Now, there is both a specific and a general way in which to apply this directive. Uh, specifically, you apply it to each and every temptation you encounter. You know, this, is, this is a one-for-one application. You're tempted to ream somebody out. I mean, you feel the bile rising in you. You're going to let loose. You walk away and you sit down, you take out a piece of notepad, and you write someone a note of encouragement. You replace a potential sinful behavior with a Christ-serving behavior. Or you're, you're tempted to download something from Netflix and watch some movie that's got garbage in it, and instead you turn off the TV and you pick up the Christian book that you purchased at one of our resource centers on our campuses, and you read a chapter in that Christ-serving book. Or you're tempted to go shopping for something you know you don't need. you got six of those things. And so instead of going shopping, you look for somebody who's got a genuine need and you meet it. Some mom of preschoolers who needs a hand or a neighbor who needs the lawn raked or, or whatever. I could go on and on, but you get the idea. Whatever you're tempted to sin, whenever you're tempted to sin, you immediately look for a Christ-serving behavior to engage in instead. By the way, there's a default behavior for you that you can always use as a substitute, and that is just pray for somebody. If you say, well, I don't know a Christ-serving behavior in this case, or it's 11 o'clock at night and I'm lying in bed thinking resentful thoughts, what am I supposed to do, jump out of bed and cook a meal for a homeless person? No, no, just pray for somebody. Pray for the person you resent or pray for anybody that God puts on your heart. That's a great default Christ-serving behavior. That's the specific way in which we apply this replacement director. There's also a general way in which to apply it, and as I, I explain this to you, I'm going to ask for our worship teams at all of our campuses to come up on the platform, and we're going to close in a song, and this is where I'm going to ask you to do something that I've never asked you to do before if you're a Christ follower. Okay, so pay close attention. But in a general way, you've heard the expression that idle hands are the devil's workshop. You know, when, when we're idle, when, when we're doing nothing of a Christ-serving nature, when we're just entertaining ourselves or we're, we're doing one more recreational activity, it's so tempting to fall into sin. And so the best way to combat it is to fill your life with more Christ-serving activities. Some of us, you know, we're too caught in the thick of thin things. Is that you? Are you doing too much shopping, watching too much football, too much Facebooking, too much eating out, too much checking on your investments, too much partying, and too little, too little visiting elderly people in a nursing home, too, too little collecting canned goods from the neighbors for the local food pantry, 
too little volunteering to work with kids through our Kids Hope Ministry in the public schools or Wednesday night at Awana, too little going on a, a go team trip to Haiti and serving for a week of vacation time. See, Christ Community Church, we specialize in helping people connect with Christ-serving activities. And those Christ-serving activities have a way over time of replacing sinful behaviors that used to preoccupy our time and energy. We just no longer have time for those things because we're all about serving Christ. 